step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca that's info at hatradio.ca hello and welcome back to hat radio this is episode 29 my name is avram rosenzweig and my guest today is my very dear friend a teacher rachel mammon how are you rachel i'm doing great thanks how are you i'm great and i want to thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview um because there are those people who simply will not do an interview like they do not want to di divulge who they are on the air to other people. You get that? I do. And then there are there are, there are those people who agree to do it, but they're shy, and it's a bit difficult for them to come on a show and express their innermost thoughts. I think that's probably closer to who you are. It is. It is. It's a little difficult for me, but I I see value in letting people in to my thoughts and letting people into how I live my life and how um, wonderful our relationship is and what it is that we have between us. Yeah, I see value in it too. And that's why when I'm choosing my guests, uh, you were an obvious because we've had so much between us over how many years do you think it's been? Over 26 years. It's been that long. It's been a yeah. long time. Yeah. You used to live in my neighborhood down the street. I did. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and I would walk over to your house on Shabbat, and I would hang out with you and your mother. Uh, God bless her soul, Rebecca. Those were good days. Yeah, they were, weren't they? Yeah. So I have to say straight away, I mean, th this this show is all about friendship and love, and it's about uh, teachers. It's about teachers, because you are a teacher. And what I want to know ultimately, and what I want to share with my guests, my listeners, is... What makes a good teacher? Why aren't there more of them, right? Who are those teachers that we remember and why? And, right. and I think you can answer those questions. I can try. Absolutely. I, I see you as a teacher. I see many people that I've had in my life come through my life as a teacher because I believe that we can really learn from each other. If you just open your eyes and you listen, um, you're a teacher too. You've taught me many, many things that I bring into my classroom, that I bring into my life, and and things that I try to share with people around me to make it spread. Like what? What have I taught you? Well, you've taught me um, not to be scared of people I don't know, to reach out, to um, make sure that I involve them in my life 
and not to be intimidated by the unknown. I think many people shy away from things that they they are unfamiliar with for fear of just not knowing. And I don't have that anymore. Remember when you had to do an interview? Yes. <laughs> you remember that? Yes. <laughs> you were not good at interviews. I still am not good oh, wh- at being why interviewed. Why is that? Why? Because I don't like and I I'm pretty sure many people are like this, but I don't like the idea of being put on the spot to say certain things, to answer in a way that I feel um, people are looking to be answered. I'm not that in-the-box thinker, and it's very difficult for me to shift how I think to answer what I know they're looking for. So answering questions when somebody is on the other side of a table with a checkbox looking for certain words um, for example that's that's how TDSB runs yeah. they look for certain words certain um, phrases and uh, yes they're all pertinent in education but not knowing those words or not using them when you speak doesn't make you less of a teacher. And I'm sure they miss out on some incredible teachers because of that interviewing process. So there's a website called uh, Indeed. Yes. Uh, do you know Indeed? No. It's helpful to uh, teachers, actually, in terms of what questions may be asked on an interview uh-huh. now that you're bringing that. So I'm going to throw out a few to you, okay? Right. Tell me how you might answer these. Right. Oh, why did you become a teacher? Because I love children. I love the process of learning. I think we should all be lifelong learners. And the idea of being able to share what I know and having to learn more so that I can keep sharing is is an incredible thing. And I love kids a lot more than adults. You do. I I do. Why? They're they're pure. They're happy. they're, They're uninhibited. They're everything that adults are losing as they get older yeah so uh, to me they're a reminder of exactly how i should be living my life do you see a big childlike component to your soul absolutely have you always had that yes yes there's an old lady inside of me too but uh (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) there is there is you like to play right you enjoy playing yeah i love playing you know what i love about you i love that honestly if whenever i talk to you on the phone Things get tough in our lives. That's just a given. You laugh a lot, a lot. Yeah, I've you, I've had some some pretty heavy things happen in my life, and and I think the ability to laugh and the ability to um, see light when when you're really feeling darkness inside is is important. If you can't do that, if you can't lift yourself up, no one can really help you with that. No, no one. Doctors can can give you medication. People can try to cheer you up in any way they can, but it has to come from within you. And the world is heavy, and it can be very dark. So having that joy inside of you is so important. I think I think one of the reasons you really never fell in love with me was because I was so maudlin when we met. <laughs> I was really depressed. That's very possible. You told me straight away. You said, Avram, you're sad a lot. Yeah. I I actually, when I meet people, yeah. even today, I um, when I meet people that are in need, I try hard to reach out to them. But when people have what they seem to need to make it through life and they're heavy and dark, 
I get away from them really quickly. I know. (laughs) Like I push them out of my life because I don't have space for that. And I don't want to make room for it because um, there's too much to see. There's a little bit of time. You never pushed me out though. You never pushed me out. You're a very special person. Thank you. The, The greatness that I see in you, there's no way I could have pushed that out of my life. See, I really liked you when we first met because you were so incredibly sad. <laughs> That's it was a little a, pathetic, but okay. <laughs> people go, what do you like about Rachel? Oh, she's very <laughs> melancholy. It's lovely. I love it. But there are people like that. I mean, clearly, it's, that's tongue in cheek. But when we did meet, there was a sadness between us, and it really worked quite nicely. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> uh, why do you want to work at this school? Okay, so you're being interviewed. Why do you want to work at this school? Oh, so I do my research. Do you prepare? Yeah, you do. Absolutely. Like I I do extensive research on the school and I try to find out exactly who's interviewing me and find out a bit about them. I remember uh, working in the pharmaceutical industry and they train you so incredibly well on how to not only sell their product, but they also train you on what to do when you walk into someone's office, what the look for's are. And I learned really quickly um, to walk into an office and to look around and see if the person has children and if the person has interests and if they're a golfer. And um, that makes connection. People want to connect. So I try to to connect with them on a personal level first. So if you came into my office and you saw a whole shelf full of golf awards, what might you say to me? What do you, you don't know anything about golf. No, I don't, but <laughs> <laughs> golf would be uh, a hard one. But, you know, I remember that pharmaceutical job. I really had nothing in common with any of the doctors. <laughs> and um, my my position was in Peterborough. So all of my colleagues would play hockey together and they do all these things together. And I was coming in from, from Toronto I was this city girl. None of them knew me. I could barely get my foot in the door. So I used my humanitarian relief experience to open doors for me because I was different. And I had to choose either something that was going to connect me with a commonality or something that was so strange to them because they all wondered, well, why would you go from humanitarian relief to pharmaceutical sales? It's like the polar opposite. What was the answer to make money, I guess? Um, yeah, it was to make money, but but it's all education. When mm. when I was with Fahafta and you sent me to Guyana, we were doing AIDS awareness and family planning education and then um, did some education with other teachers. But working in pharmaceuticals, I was educating the doctors on the drug. They they give you so much information and train you so incredibly well on one, two, three drugs that you actually know more than the doctor. So you're mm. going in with really valuable information. And if yeah. they're going to prescribe the drugs, which I, I, you know, never, ever take, right. <laughs> um, then that's an important thing, right? So we have to have medical missions and we sent groups of people to Guyana, South America, which is considered to be one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere, also to Zimbabwe. You went down to Guyana how many times? Twice. You went twice. What was that like for you? An incredible experience. How so? Um, the first time I went with um, a smaller group, I think there were three of us, and then the 
next time I went, there were 14 volunteers. They were totally different experiences, but um, very, very enriching. Uh, it opens your eyes. It opens your eyes to how little people have and how rich their lives really are. That that what we've bought into in Toronto, downtown where I live, like that that whole idea of your house and your car and this, you know, at the school I teach at, the children are in all of these lessons and there's there's camp to learn how to ride a bike. Like yeah. what happened to getting on your bike and riding it? Really? Is there and, a camp for that? Yeah, there is. It's called pedal heads. Pedal. Like, so how, like about, <laughs> how about just teach your kid how to ride a bike and let them fall off and let that be an experience between the two of you because they'll never forget it. Now they're going to remember some instructor at Pedalheads who taught them how to do it and then someone else who taught them how to swim. So how about making those experiences something that you do with your child? And in Guyana, because of lack of resources, because of lack of everything, finances, they do it themselves. So their experiences are, are rich in that way. What, what image comes to mind when we speak of Guyana? What do you see in your head? The community that greeted us, um, the, the children and their happiness and them screaming down the street, hey, Whitey, we're here. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, bonding with, with people that you think they're so different from you. It's not going to happen. And it happens in such an organic way. It's the most beautiful thing. So when I think of Guyana, I think of everything that's, um, everything that life should be. Although they don't have money, they have everything else that makes their lives rich. Such as what? They have community. They go and knock on each other's doors instead of, you know, always making plans. I, I have to book with my friends two weeks in advance to speak yeah. with them. Yeah. And then I get a time slot from 11 to 12. Yes. It's not... Um, it's not how it should be. I, I, I to, just booked, to me, it's not. I, I booked three weeks in advance with Lou, my buddy Lou Berkowitz. See? Who did the first show here. And I'm thinking while I'm doing that, man, God, what an idiot. Uh, but that's life here in Canada. What can you do? You know, Israelis who come here, they often comment on that because it's a similar thing in Israel where you knock on somebody's door. So I knock on my neighbor's doors. That's what you can do. So I let my friends know that... Yeah, we're making plans for two weeks from now. But if you have an evening free that comes up and you want to call me last minute, just give me a call. So could I pop over to your house pretty much any night? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Now, what if you're busy? If I'm busy, I, I won't be there. Busy at yeah. home? If I'm busy at home, I'm like, what could I be doing? I mean, I could be cooking. I could be yeah. reading. Like, I can read later and you can help me cook. And that's part of the experience. Yeah, I'd, uh, you know, like to look normal when somebody comes to the door. But other than that, I'd, it's a beautiful thing to have somebody come knock on the door and say, you know what, I, I was here and I didn't pass your house. I'm horrified when people tell me I was there and I just couldn't come in. I just walked yeah, right. by and, and I live in a spot where people are walking by all the time and I know it. So I say to them, just come knock. I have a nest it's like a, a doorbell that where I can see your face. If I'm horrified at the fact that you're at my door, I don't have to answer. Or how you look. No, I wouldn't do that. No, no. You said you have to make sure that you look good when you answer the well, door. I would, so I'm sitting here thinking, what do you need to do? Honestly, I would. I mean, sometimes I'm walking around in a t-shirt. So I'd go and grab a robe and I'd come down. Makeup? That's how I got my tenant. No. What do you mean that's how you got your tenant? 
I, <laughs> I was in my bathrobe. <laughs> I was in my bathrobe. And um, we were actually renovating. So I live in a triplex and we were uh, renovating the top floor. So we moved downstairs to the main floor and lived down there while we renovated. Yeah, I remember that. And I was at a point where I was sort of half of my stuff was upstairs half of it was downstairs i was upstairs taking a shower and i saw this young woman outside with what looked to be her mother and they were looking at the sign i had a sign out on my lawn saying for rent and i looked at her and i just thought um i have to go get her so i ran down the stairs i grabbed my robe and i said do you want to come in and look at it it's not finished yet i'm renovating and i'm in my bathrobe but please come in and she's my tenant now and she is the most beautiful person i could have asked for is she yeah i'm really really lucky i have two lovely lovely people living in my house did did you have to figure out how to interact with people so that it worked for you and for them because you're a different sort of person when it comes to personal behavior you really think differently. You act differently. I mean, I figured that out when you gave one of your tropical fish a Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually worked. And I tried it. It was with dying. No- <laughs> it was dying. Don't I'm, think- I'm thinking, this girl really thinks differently, you know, and you do. So did you have to go through a process to understand how other people act and behave in order to interact as best as possible? I don't know if it's a process I went through, but I think it's a process I'm consistently going through because each time I meet someone, um, it's different. Like I, I don't have in Canada, I hear people say like, uh, those are personal boundaries. This is my personal space and they draw like a square around their bodies and I'm, I don't have that. So sometimes when I'm speaking to someone, I lean forward and I get involved in the conversation and I realize that they're actually stepping back. So I'm aware. Yes. I, yes. I have emotional intelligence and I'm I'm aware of that social interaction. So I back off. I still speak to them, but I give them their space. But that's something I had to learn. And, because and- when I really like you, I'm a little bit close. Like I get close. When I meet somebody that that I feel connected to, I hug them. So if they're not ready for a hug, um, a lot of the times now I, I feel it and I, I shake hands or, or something else. But I just took a course, for example, and I met two girls that um, were lovely. And I knew right away, I knew I could be friends with them. Yeah. So at the end of the course, the professor had us go around we had these um, charts that we made. Each one of us had one, had our name on it. And she said, flip it over and go around and write a comment about what you learned about each person in the course. And I went straight to those girls and I wrote, I uh, I could be your friend. Really? Because I, I felt that. And it was sort of funny because two of us, three of us actually were sitting together. And at the end I said, Melissa, give me your phone number. And I just uh, leaned in and gave her my phone. And the other girl looked at me and she said, Rachel, how do you know she wants your number? Yeah, right. Which is a typical Canadian thing to say, right? And I said, chances are pretty good she does. And if she doesn't, she doesn't have to call me. <laughs> and you were right. Um, yeah, she reached out to me, made me a friend on Facebook. And, and you know, 
yes, I'm getting older and I have my group of friends and I'm comfortable with what I have, but I always want more friends. I always want to know good people. When I hear people say I can barely manage the ones I have, this isn't managing. I don't, I don't see people as having to manage. Yes, I love my old friends and, and there's no doubt that there's connection. Yeah, a richer one, right? Right? Years of experience, the experience that, that, that we've had together and our history and, and experiencing death and experiencing um, happy occasions and everything that we go through, nothing can ever replace that. You're and, going, and that's why you put up with my garbage. Absolutely. And that's <laughs> why you put up with my crazies. <laughs> so what's this? Explain to me what this is. A lot of times you whisper. What is that? When you speak to me, you whisper a lot. Yeah. So what is that? Today you told me to make sure I'm speaking into the mic and I'm making a very conscious effort to do that. You're doing a good job. I, um, I feel that you'll hear me. I don't have to raise my voice for you to hear me. And trust me, I, it's not like I haven't raised my voice. So um, I'm Moroccan and I've grown up around a lot of really loud people and I don't like it. You don't? No. I don't think you have to be loud to be heard. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's actually a lot of beauty in silence and knowing when to just shut it off and just listen. But whispering, I guess, reminds me that I can use a softer voice and that that's okay. So I was at a cousin's house, a cousin of yours, and they were very vociferous. They were very loud. There was one particular guy at the table who the entire Shabbat dinner was talking about Israel, I believe. And he was virtually yelling his points. And everybody was kind of smiling and laughing. And to me, it was too much of a shock for my system. So so are you saying that's what happened to you and therefore you went the other way? I think so. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think so. I, I grew up in a, in a large family and I was the youngest. And I remember as a child, I remember when I would get angry, I remember running away and going and slamming my door. Did you? And just running away. Um, yeah, screaming and yelling at each other and whatever goes on with that Moroccan hot-blooded, passionate, whatever you want to call that. Um, I, I don't really like it. I don't need it. I don't see that as a way of communicating screaming over each other or raising your voice because you think you're going to be heard better is um speaks to your lack of ability to be a listener so in your house now you and sasha your husband are you guys peaceful do you ever yell peaceful it's so peaceful is it it's so peaceful like chimes it's beautiful it's beautiful is it yeah like tell me about that i'm really i'm really lucky I am. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain that. My nieces ask me, how do you know? How do you know when you meet the right person? How do you know when that's the person? And I don't think you ever really know until you wake up next to the person day after day after day. And you look over and you think to yourself, this is a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it's, calm and it's loving and it's supportive and 
one thing that I think I also had to learn is that it's not reasonable to want one person to give you everything you need. Right. And it's okay to have friends to fill in gaps, friends that that um, you give to and you benefit from in other areas. And to expect the person you choose to be everything is very big. It's huge, yes. especially if you're someone who needs, especially if you're someone who wants more out of life. Um, but my husband's... Uh, very chill he's he is yeah he he is you know the best way i know how to describe it is that there's people that sort of they dig they're digging their way through life it's almost like you're underground and you're moving things out of your way all right. the time right and then there's people who sit on top of the ground and they sort of coast it's almost a little bit more like floating in the ocean and they coast and Sasha coasts. He's very balanced. Yeah. He doesn't get really, really, really happy. He doesn't get really sad. He just, he's balanced. But then, you know, my craziness comes into place and, and yeah, what does he do with that? Well, I, I've asked him, I, I used to say to him like, you're so balanced. That means you're never really going to feel happy. You're never going to really feel as happy and excited about things as I've felt. It's impossible. Like great joy. Like, yeah, like elated, like to the point where, I mean, only certain things in my life have done that for me. But what a feeling to miss out on. What does he say? He doesn't. Um, he doesn't believe that he would miss that, that if something is that exciting, that it'll ignite something. And have you seen him being elated? Um, yeah. Football. Uh, oh, football. Football's different. <laughs> he's a big football guy. Football's different. He's a big football guy. Yeah, he's definitely passionate about football. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that gets him going. But, um, yeah, what's interesting about him is when I've seen him elated, he is... Um, He's emotional. Like, I've seen music move him to tears. Have you? Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So there are things that um, that ignite everyone inside, just in a different way. Rach, what's your love like for, for Sasha? How big is it? It's so big, it's scary. It scares me. Because when something is that big, then that means that without it, you might crash yeah so it yeah it's big <laughs> it's as big as as it can be like i can't imagine it being bigger so if it were a picture what would it look like the sky the or sky ocean yeah vast vast something that i can't see the end of <laughs> you should see your face right now <laughs> You're exclaiming it very well. Yeah, you love a lot. You love a lot. There's a lot to love. Good answer. Yeah, good response. There's a lot to love in listen, the world. Listen, in 26 years ago, is that what it was when we first met? I think so. That's so. So we, uh, our friend Orna, she she brought us together, and uh, 
Oh, wow. That was even more than 26 years. It was a long time ago. But I just remember meeting you and meeting your mom, coming to your apartment, and straight away, you guys just took care of me. And I needed that really badly. As you'll remember, I was a very needy person because I didn't get the love that I needed. And I came into your home and you and your mother, you cooked for me. Yes. You sat with me and you would sit very close and talk to me. Your mother, I absolutely adored your mother. I loved your mother so much that when she passed away, I was in Florida and I went down to the beach and I drew a circle around myself and I thought, you know, this is a moment when I'm going to remember Rebecca. And a pigeon came and sat down next to me. And, of course, we all make that connection between birds and those who passed, thinking, okay, here's Rebecca. And it looked at me and it twisted its neck. You know how they do it, right, the pigeons? And then eventually flew away. And as I sat there, the wind swept away the circle. Right. And I knew that my memorial, that moment, was gone, and I had closure with your mother. But how often in life do you meet someone's mother or father and you just feel as though, ah, this is what I need. I need that exuberance, that zest, that passion and compassion which your mother gave me, God bless her soul, and which you gave me. You guys just know how to love. You know how to love. I was loved. I was loved, so I I it's easy for me to love. I don't I don't generally have to work at loving someone. You don't. No. I I mean I I suppose it, it depends who we're talking about. I don't just It's not like I love everybody around me all the time. I don't. There's people that are harder to love, but those people, if you really, really put effort into your relationship with them, you end up loving them more because you worked so hard at it. Mm -hmm. um, it's like that with students. My students that, that cause me the most grief, I end up connected to the strongest because you're invested in them. You spend more time trying to make it great. Love is um, it's big. It's beautiful. And uh, we forget. I feel like we live in a society where people hoard their love. They're keeping it for like another day. or I'm not sure what they're doing with it. But yeah. People are scared to put themselves out there. What happens with you and your little ones, your students, and we should say that you teach five and six-year-olds, and I know you, so I know that you're showing love as a teacher, which is not a TDSB rule. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> which is the Toronto District Board of, uh, DD, what is it? Toronto District School Board. Yeah. And in fact, it's the opposite of that. Don't, don't show affection, that's for sure, right? Uh, Are you allowed to show affection? They have a... No touching rule. <laughs> yeah. So you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to hug. You're not supposed to uh, have them like. You're not supposed to have physical contact with kids. 
and I um, rather not teach than teach kids that that's okay. So what do you do? I hug them. I dance with them. I interact <laughs> with them exactly how I feel a great a, a five or six year old a kindergarten child needs to be loved. I mean, there's loads of research showing that that babies that aren't nurtured and aren't held and aren't cuddled um, are underdeveloped, that they actually suffer in a huge way. So why would they assume that that disappears at the age of five and six? So I understand they're trying to to protect. I understand these are not my children. And and, um, what I do to avoid any issues is... I make sure to get to know the parents. I I make sure to have a really close connection with the parents so that they understand who I am and they're comfortable. So when the parents come to me, they often hug me. Do they? And and when it's okay to hug each other, then it's okay to hug their child. Um so I make sure that that I build a really solid relationship with the parents of the children I teach. And what happens when you meet a parent who is not effusive, who is not warm that way, or who might even say, you know, you're too warm for my for my liking? Well, I don't. Maybe not in those words. Oh, you right. don't meet parents. I, I don't. I don't. Uh, no, no. I, I have. I mean, there's when you meet people, you, you can tell what kind of relationship you're going to have. You can tell how close they're going to let you. I'm not. I don't go up to people, lunge on them, and hug them when I first meet them. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I I respect people's personal boundaries in that way, and I know that this is a professional um, environment that I'm in, and I take that into account also. But when the classroom door is closed and there's music on and, and the kids are dancing and they come and grab your hands because they want to dance with you. There's no way that I'm going to turn away and say, oh no, DDSB says we can't do that. Yeah, right, right. Because a child will look at you and say, well, why not? Well, that's wrong. Well, you're not a stranger. And I don't even teach them about strangers. You remember how they taught us don't speak to strangers? Yeah. I don't teach them that. Everybody's a stranger. Every single person you meet in your life is a stranger until the you make them your friend. Yeah. So um, instead, what I do is I teach them about tricky adults. <laughs> good. And good what phrase. it is to, to, you know, what the look fors are and, and how to know um, who you can trust and who you can't trust. So that's tricky too. But, but I try to uh, rephrase it because not speaking to strangers is um, something that they see their parents doing all day. What is it like to dance with the kids? It's amazing. <laughs> it's liberating. How so? It's beautiful. You know, you close the door and you you just, at the beginning of the year, I meet kids that just stand there when I put the music on. They're just stiff and they stand there and, and they'll say things like, I don't know how to dance. And I tell them that that's the beautiful thing about dancing. You don't have to know how to dance. You have to close right. your eyes. And you just have to listen to the music and your body moves. And if your body wants to stamp its feet, then you stamp your feet. And if your arms want to wave, then you wave. And if they don't, then you wait until it feels right. 
You can drum on your knees. You can drum on your friend's head. You can you can move however you see fit. What kind of music do you put on? Every kind of music. Give me an example. Um, I I play the Beatles for them. I play. I teach them all the songs from The Sound of Music. Right. I play. Um, what else do I play for them? Elton John, Billy Joel, I. David Bowie. They knew all the David Bowie songs by the end of the year. Uh, so what happens with that little girl? Inevitably, there's one like this in every class. You know, while everybody's dancing and having a great time, she's sort of off at her desk, head down, you know, just not relating to what's going on. So there's usually a reason for that. I don't think kids are, are sad or reclusive or... Um, crawl into themselves naturally. I don't think children are like that. And and if you take the time to speak to them and to know what's going on inside their little minds, it helps you understand. If somebody doesn't feel like dancing, then they don't dance. But usually I try very hard to build such a tight community with them that they understand that when the music goes on, we're all dancing and that's what makes it fun because we're such a, a close little family in there that if somebody's not dancing, we all hurt. We all wonder if that person is okay. We're all concerned and that that throws off wow. our vibe. Oh, that's beautiful. How do you know all this stuff? Is it just inherent or do you read? <laughs> I guess no, a really, little, how do you know this a stuff? A little of both. No, because it's a very, it's a, it's a tremendous insight and it's not one that generally gets passed on in a classroom environment. If you're not dancing, then we're all hurt. We're all upset. We're all bothered by it. And it's very true. That's a that's natural to me. If I'm, if someone is um, if someone is left out, if someone's not feeling good in your family, your family is not complete. You're not able to to dance around and celebrate when somebody's hurting it doesn't make sense if you can there's something wrong with you right so one thing that i really really focus on in my class is building that empathy and 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 having kids leave me with with a true idea of what compassion is knowing how to make themselves feel better when they hear things that hurt them i give them the tools for life I give them the tools so that when they go into grade one and they go into this big yard, kindergarten has like a smaller yard and you're with all the young kids together. So there's five in our school, five kindergarten classes. But I'm well aware that by the end of the year, they're going to be going into a huge yard with 650 kids. And there's going to be a big kid that pushes you. There's going to be nastiness there's going to be name calling there's going to be everything and i don't hide that from them i i arm them so that they feel brave inside and they feel confident enough to be able to say i don't like that stop it and not say it in a sweet voice so that the person gets the message um so as much as you want to keep them naive and pure and untainted you want to arm them you want to make sure that they um, 
can stand up for themselves, that they know what to do when they're hurting, that when they're faced with a bullying situation, that there is a mix of strength and compassion that you have to have because there's something wrong with the person bullying. And So give me an example of a conversation you'd be having with your children or with a child in your class having to do with that. How, how would you open that issue up? It happens. It happens in class because there'll be... Um, There'll be times when we're not kind to each other and and somebody will say something that hurts someone else or or take something that someone wants to play with at the time. And we have huge discussions. We stop. I stop the class. We sit in a circle and I always sit in a circle because I. I believe in that circle. I believe in closing us in so that they get a sense that if someone's missing from the circle, it's incomplete. Right. Um, so we would sit in a circle and, and discuss it. And, and I would make them verbalize what exactly they're feeling so that the other person can feel it, so that the other person can hear it and understand how that feels. And they're very smart. We, we really, really, really underestimate how incredible their minds are and how advanced they are in their thinking and we we dumb things down and i really really made a conscious effort not to do that you know it's interesting what you're using is a form of justice that natives use and it's also something which is coming into our society thank god right yes sort of an alternative form of justice um my friend Joan is involved with that. And you're right. What she does is she forms a circle with the person who is a victim and the person who perpetuated the, or perpetrated the, uh, with the crime or whatever it happened to be. And they speak to one another. Yes. They talk to one another. It's the only way we understand each other. How are you going to know what I'm feeling inside? If I don't explain it to you, you are not me. Clearly we're, we're, so incredibly different from one another it's what makes the idea of meeting strangers and building relationships it that idea just blows me away yeah that you grow up in a household where you believe that what your parents have shown you is correct that it's the right way that it's maybe even the only way until a certain age until you leave your home and go into someone yeah. else's house it's bible right yeah and and then I grow up in another home exactly the same way with different ideas of what correct is, of what is acceptable. And then we meet each other and you're supposed to form a relationship, get married and have a cohesive environment for children to grow up in when your ideas about life came from your parents and they're totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That idea blows my mind. Because it's amazing that any marriages last when you think yeah. of it that way. Yeah, I feel the same way. I often look at couples in that light thinking, my God, look where they came from and look where they're at. But I guess the brilliance of a well-honed relationship is that as well. Yes. Like with you and Sasha, you guys came from two different backgrounds. You're Moroccan. <laughs> Moroccans are feisty. They're hot-blooded. Aesthetic, well-developed senses. Sasha is uh, Serbian, I believe, right? Yeah. 
Very, very different background. What did you have to get used to with him? Um, Culturally. I don't think... I don't think it had to do so much with the fact that he's Serbian that made it so different. Um, what was even bigger between us was that he's an only child. Oh, and yeah. I come from hundreds. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not even sure how many there are actually. <laughs> um, that was bigger for us because. His sense of family looks very different than mine. Yeah. His family was him, his mother, his father, an aunt and uncle, and two cousins. And then, yes, his father actually had a really big family, but they are there. And he was born in Switzerland and then came to Canada and, you know, didn't experience that sense of family the same way as me. So how did that play out? It's always interesting. Oh, still? Sure. How long have you guys been together? Uh, August will be 13 years we've been married. Mazel tov. Thank you. Mazel tov. Thank you. Yeah, so how is he with your sisters when they come over or you go over there? He's good. He's good. He is good? Well, he tries. Do they take care, good care of him? Do they dote upon him? That's what they used to do with me. They would dote on me. They would dote on so you nice. because you liked it. And I needed it. He doesn't like being doted oh, on. Oh, he doesn't like it. No. So they leave him alone. Yeah. Oh, your sisters have the ability to leave him alone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> have you seen him? <laughs> he just sits there, you know, just not to... <laughs> but is yeah. he having a good time? Uh, Sometimes. I guess. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's it's crazy. It's a big, crazy family. Like it's it's a lot. Yeah, you guys right? really are. And so there's a lot used of to you. like silence. He's used to himself. Even if as a child, he played alone. Like he he yeah. didn't. I don't even know what that's like. I mean, I shouldn't say that. As a child, I played alone also because the the age gap was so huge. But I I had little friends around me. He played a lot of sports. So just different, just different ways of growing up. I, I just have distinct memories, and I talked about this before, but it, it's so pervasive in this interview. I remember bringing my Aunt Sylvia <laughs> to your family, and they sat next to her, and they were caressing her cheek. Yeah, she was like 120 years old. She was like a million, <laughs> and she was lovely. She was a ballerina in her soul. She was. Yeah, and they were so sensitive toward her. It was beautiful to watch, and that's what I got from you guys. I just adored being with you guys. I really did. I don't know if other people have that in their lives. It's almost like a surrogate family, um, and I don't know why I don't hang out with you guys more often but i guess as we get older you know how it goes but really i just felt so warm and safe yeah you see that's something that just happens naturally there's no thought that goes into that right that is right. um you are a person who needed or enjoyed it and and then you had all these people who do it naturally and it just happened right if if you are not in need, if the person on the receiving end is not accepting of it, it just doesn't happen. So I think the way that you love is so real and so big and so hard that they were able to love you back that very same way. My mother loved you like that. Oh, 
my sisters all love you. Every single one of them love you. Yeah, I know. I know. And this is what blows me and away. And it's real. There's, I, no, I know. there's no show. Like, that's one thing that I can say. They, There's no show. No one's doing anything. You have a sister who feeds the homeless. I do. And I was asking about it the other day, and you were kind of vague on the details, which I thought was interesting. In other words, she's not out there bouncing this all over the place. This is, hey, this is what I do. She does it because she loves and cares for what other people would call the strangers. Another form of love, right? Yes. Yeah, she does it naturally. She what does, does she do, Rach? Like, what do you know? What does she do? Um, she she cooks and she uh, she invites people that she knows have nowhere to go, and she um, she just takes food in her car and she goes out and feeds people. Does she? Yeah. And she's not a wealthy woman no, by any she's stretch. she's not. She's not at all. She's um, she's not. She actually struggles a lot. And maybe because she struggles the way that she does, she understands their need. You must be very proud of her. I am. I am. I'm really proud of her. There's um, There's not many people that can give like that. No. People no. who are who are rich and understand that they're bound to give their ten percent and give to charity and that's a different way of giving. But when you don't have and you give, um, it's really special. You are like that. You well, thank you. Give regardless of where you're at in your life. You always have. You know, it's so difficult to understand, and maybe you have a thought on this, and it sounds like I'm about to be critical of the wealthy, but I don't understand why they just don't give their money away. It is such a naive statement to make to many, but if you're worth fortunes of money, and so many people are in our society, like you were saying before about, what were they called, pedal heads, you know? I love that thing, pedal heads. Right. You know, and comparing that to Guyana, or I know people here who can't rub two nickels together. And this is, again, please criticize me as much as you want. I don't understand why we're not creating alliances or partnerships where someone who's worth $10 million goes to like an impoverished family who can't put three meals on the table today and say, you know what, here's $10,000 of my money. Is that silly, Rach? No, no, no. I, I have always believed that um, if you're making over a certain amount of money, you should have a link to a family. Every family gets a family. If there's single people, then you do it with single people, however it works out. I don't know the, the details of it, but what I do understand is that it would be an amazing thing if every family that really had everything that they needed and more yeah. just supported another family and and did it in a more natural, holistic way than than our welfare system, where where they actually get this money and then they go to find work, but work's not going to pay them as much as the welfare is going to pay them. So it's actually to their benefit to sit at home and not go get a job, and they end up sitting at home and drinking, or or being less useful with their lives and getting less of a sense of responsibility for themselves because of how the system is. 
and I that makes me really sad yeah, because me too. making it real would be would be uh, a man meeting another man and looking in his eyes and him understanding that he too is a father and this is where he's at and he's down on his luck and maybe he helps him find a job maybe he helps him gain some skills a surrogate family right a surrogate family that's right i have clothes that i don't need you know what i used to love what you would do can i talk about this sure you used to put together your undergarments your bras and you used to take them down to women's shelters and and i thought can i tell you a thought that i had during this interview i wish you wouldn't have to go home Thank you. One of the one of the blessings that I get by doing this show is that I really get to know the core of people. And while I know you so well, by you expressing what's on your mind, what's in your heart, what's in your soul, in a really, really, uh, in a in in a a very contained environment, if you will, like I see your beauty more than I've ever seen it almost. And I just, I'm thinking to myself, damn, she's got to go home, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Thank you. So I just want you to know that. I really do. That's a huge compliment. Thank you. I love you so much, Rach. You're such a special person. Just the way you talk. And you're not full of crap. Like there's granola people who say the same thing as you, but you know, they don't mean it. But I know this is coming from a very, very real place inside of you. You know what I'm talking about, those granola people? Well, it's really important we're all equal, and they're the same people who are never very rarely warm and so on. But this is from your soul. This is very real. Yeah, it is. I I mean, the the flip side to that is that I don't feel that I do enough. Um, I don't... I, I ask myself, like, what it is that I'm doing to actually make the world better, and I'm I have a connection to the children that I teach, but I'm really fortunate and they're very fortunate and it's at a great school and there's unlimited resources. Um, but I feel like I should be doing more for people that are truly in need. Like what? Like what? Giving giving bras to the youth shelter was um, very logical to me. I was dropping off clothing. I was dropping off donations and things that that um, the shelter hired me to help them with. And yet I would see these girls and I realized like nobody gives bras because it's not, uh, I don't It's too personal. It's too it's intimate. personal. It's intimate. People see it as gross. So when I took them there, I made sure that everything was in really good shape. And, and I asked them, I said, like, is this something that you think the girls can use? And if you saw how quickly yeah, they, adored they, it. they said, yes, you don't understand. Nobody gives us this because th- they think it's not appropriate. And there I was- keep that that idea blows my mind because what's appropriate trumps what should be. There was another statement that was made, too, at that time, because I remember you had some pretty sexy bras and you took them down there. And the people there said these women never have the opportunity to feel sexy. Right. Do you remember that? Because everything's practical when you're poor. Everything has to be well said, well said what you need. Clean socks like that doesn't make you feel like a woman. Well said. So 
we're talking a lot about your life. We're talking a lot about your family. We're kind of going back and forth. In my mind, the two mesh together. I don't think you make a distinction between the love for your family and the love for the, the kids that you teach every year. Clearly, there is. This is biological, and you grew up with them as brothers and sisters. And these kids are brought into your class every year, and you have a limited amount of time with them. That must play out in some ways. But your love has very few parameters, right? I think it has very few lines to it. You know who's like that? Ron McLean is like that from Hockey Night in Canada. He's done a number of different workshops at the Via Hufta Street Academy. It's a school for people who are near homeless. Yes. And he talks about his belief in agape love, which is I love everyone because they're creation of creations of God. I love that. I love everybody. <laughs> yeah. That's you a are a creation thing. of God and I love you. Now, obviously his wife would have a bit of a problem with that, but he is very consistent. And he, his love that he shows for every human being, you should have seen when he was teaching our students at the Street Academy, um, there was no division that you could really see between him and the students. And the students go from 18 years old up to 70 years old in terms of his availability, his emotional um, and, and soulful accessibility. He was there. He was president. You are alive as I am alive, right? When people are real, you feel it. You feel it. You feel it. You feel and it. And yeah. if you feel it, then why stop that love from happening? Yeah. Why not say it? I feel like, you know, <laughs> someone compared uh, love to ice cream and said, well, you know, if you, if you love like every single day, it's like eating ice cream every day. After a while, it won't be appreciated the same way. You won't want any more ice cream. Oh, ice man. cream is special because you have it from time to time. Rocky Road, I could do that every day. And I, I'm not buying that. <laughs> Me neither, man. I, I have <laughs> enough love to like spew it out every day and I get replenished. The way that we go to sleep at night and we refuel and we wake up with energy in the morning, I feel like somebody's filling my love tank and I'm ready to go the next day. Uh, any thoughts on what you want written on your tombstone? I mean, I have something. She loved and was loved. <sighs> she loved and was loved. That would be enough. Are there any teachers that stand out in your mind in history that were superlative? To go that route when you study your teaching? I um yeah, but I I I remember only two. Can you tell me who they are? Um a grade one teacher that I had and um and a high school teacher that I had who uh took the time to figure out what my challenges were instead of treating me like um, like everyone else because you're supposed to try and, and be fair to everyone. This idea that the schools have about fairness and equity and equitable um, and, and what equality is, is uh, it's horrible in my mind because we don't all need the same thing and giving somebody what they don't need is a waste and he recognized that and I remember uh, writing a test actually not writing the test I remember just staring at the page and giving him an empty 
answer sheet at the end of our exam and he sat with me after and he said, I know you know the answers. And he asked me the questions verbally and he wrote them out. And that's something that we do for kids today. Kids with learning disabilities, it's called scribing and we do that for them. But back then, no one did that. And he sat down and he did it for me and I left feeling whole when I actually wrote nothing down, I gave him all of the answers. Wow. And when I got up, he said, I knew you knew. And he took the time to get to know me. His name was Mr. Dworkin. I still remember him. <laughs> but, um, who was the other teacher? I must say that I, I've learned more from people than my teachers. Who was the other teacher? I actually, uh, can't remember her name. I think it was Levenstein. She was lovely. She was my grade one teacher and she loved hard. And I actually found her. Her son went to school with me when we were older. And I went back to her and I told her what she had done for me. And I told her how few people in my life actually did that. So when I think of what I want to leave behind, I want to leave behind students who I impact in that way. What did she say when you told her? She cried. She cried and she she said that I had no idea what it meant that um, that I was saying these things to her. But now I do. Now that I'm a teacher, I do. Because um, when parents show me gratitude the way that they do... Uh, it's devastating leaving them at the end of the year. Is it? I see many, many teachers like counting down the days. And yes, I was exhausted by the end of the year. Like I really needed a break, but I was so unhappy to leave the kids. Were you? Yeah. Well, what was that like? It's actually horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. What do you mean, Rachel? We did a little, you know, we have a going away concert and, and after that, I do a little ceremony in my class where the kids graduate and I give them um, a special memory book that I make for them of all of their memories over the year and uh, and a little portfolio of their work with a certificate. And and when uh, they each came up to, to get their uh, packages, I, I couldn't even speak. Really? So... I hope I, I have a positive impact on them and that, that if anything more important than teaching them how to read and write, which I'm sure they will all learn in good time, that I taught them what it is to be mindful of people, what it is to be compassionate when you see somebody with less than you and to, and to wear other people's shoes, to put them on, to really, really feel it. I hope I leave them with that. And it's amazing that in kindergarten, even though they're four and five and six years old, they know. They know and they are capable of feeling those deep feelings. And I know how to love like that because I was loved like that. You know, when I was grade one and two, I had Miss Babcock as my teacher. I uh, skipped a grade. And uh, she was that type of teacher the one you speak of who is present and who is caring and warm 
And like I said to you before, I grew up in a type of house which wasn't all of that on a regular basis. And I really, really needed love a lot in a way which worked for me. You know, the five languages of love. I needed the affection. Right. And Miss Babcock was. I needed someone to speak to me and say nice things to me. And I still have that, don't I? <laughs> yes. I need to be told nice things. You do. But yeah. Evram, everybody does. And do they? whether or not they care to say it out loud or to admit it, everybody needs to feel loved. No and question. Everybody needs to feel appreciated. Everyone. There is no one who you can show appreciation to who is ever going to meet you with uh i don't need that no they might say True. oh no 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 don't be silly they might say things yeah. like that but i had to actually teach myself how to stop and just say thank you yes very good because that's right it's a it good was lesson. my instinct to turn it away to turn away the gratitude to turn away the massive amounts of compliments like I got uncomfortable and El I had to learn to just say thank, thank you. you. Elliot Rubenstein tells a story also one of the guests on Hat Radio he's a spiritual leader at a synagogue and when he started at the, the synagogue people would come up to him and they say Rabbi that was a beautiful speech you gave and he would say something like oh you must have been listening to somebody else then and someone finally said to him they said you know you make us feel badly when you do that, he said, what? Do what? When you deflect away our gratitude and compliments. And he said, yes, I get that. And he changed that moment. I just want to tell you, the end of the Miss Babcock story is at the end of grade two, I went home and I distinctly remember, you know, we all have a narrative and we remember the, the pages and then we remember the chapters. I went home, Rachel, and I was crying my eyes out because I knew that I would never see Miss Babcock again. And I never did. And I think about her often. I think about how I should go into the TDSB or the Kitchener uh, School Board archives and try to find out where she is because I loved her and she loved me. And, and when she was gone, I felt as though I had lost a very important person in my life. So you should do that. I should, should do that, right? Make it your business to go find her and let her know what she did for you. Okay, I'm going to do there that. there is nothing I'm gonna do that. like that. I have students whose names I write down because I know they're going to do great things in their lives and I want to know them. I love that. I want to keep knowing them. I wish I was in your class. I really do. I would go back to kindergarten to be in your class, you know? You're welcome to come <laughs> hang out. I want to speak. Dance. I told you I'd speak to your kids. So so I want to take a moment in the, in the, uh, in the show. It's a great show, by the way. You're doing a great job. Um, we're doing well, aren't we? We are. We are. Uh, I uh, and when we w after this piece right here, and I'll tell you about it in a second. I want to come back and I want to ask you a very distinct question. Okay, why don't we have more teachers in our history, in our educational career, if you will, from kindergarten up to grade twelve and then university? Who made a huge difference in our lives? Who we look back on in the way that you did about Mr. Dworkin? and have fond, good memories of that individual, someone who inspired us. So stay with that for a second. But what I'd like to do now is I want to add, I want to add a piece to the show. And it's called, Did You Know This? Okay. I would argue, and tell me if you agree with me, Rachel, that most people really do not know the other. 
anti-Semitism exists in large part, not entirely. There is hatred, pure hatred out there. But anti-Semitism exists in large part because people do not really know the Jewish people. Okay? Yes. Um, how much do we know about the Greek people? What can you tell me about people in Greece or the country, country Greek, Greece? How much do we know about them enough so that we can say, you know what? I understand forming some sort of world unity and bond with the Greek people is important. It's safe. It's something that I want to do. So here's what I want to tell you. Here's something about the Jewish people that people probably do not know. And I'm telling them this right now to open up their minds, to open up their consciousness, to understand if they have any ill feelings about the Jewish people, this might help you in terms of breaking down the stereotypes, okay? This is insight that you and I would share at a Shabbat table, but we don't share with people outside of our tribe, okay? Right. Well, the most one of the most important things in Judaism is learning. It's the study of Torah, right? Yes. The Torah is the five books of Moses. This is paramount in terms of our existence, to the extent that the Torah actually says that there's nothing more important than teaching your children Torah. And what we can extrapolate from that than teaching our children like you do. So there's even a school of thought which says that it's more important than saving lives. Now, that's an extreme, extreme thought, but I think that it probably exists in order to make a point that the question why sits deeply in the cortex of our brain. Why this? Why that? Why do we exist? Right? Why is the sky blue? Judaism comes along and says, you need to learn. You need to study. And it sets out a path for an individual to do that. So we have the five books of Moses, right? Bereshit, Genesis, in the beginning, etc. And then later we learn the Talmud, right? The Talmud is a compendium of tractates, about 63 books, which essentially breaks down the entire Torah, and, and, and speaks to some incredibly important concepts such as the, the rules having to do with women, the rules having to do with Nazikim, which is damages. Like you'll remember when you were in school, you studied Talmud, right? Yes. The Talmud says stuff like that. Well, what happens if I share a piece of <laughs> land with you and uh, your, gore, your, your ox gores my ox? Right. <laughs> now, you're 13 or 14 years old learning this stuff. and You're thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I don't have an ox. <laughs> I don't even have an ox. But the truth of the matter is what it does is it opens your mind to a lot of very important concepts. In this case, the concepts of how do you live with people, right? What's the respect that I'm supposed to give you? We're talking here about oxen, but really what we're talking about is you're my neighbor. You're part of my community. How am I supposed to respond to your needs? Okay? It's a manual. It's a manual. Nicely said. It's a blueprint. And that's essentially a huge part of what Judaism is all about. So if you hadn't known this about the Jewish people, let me tell you that in Judaism, education, intellect is not centralized. In other words, it's not just the property of the rabbis. If you go into any synagogue, you will find people there who have incredible knowledge, Torah knowledge, secular knowledge very often, and just essentially knowledge about the world because they study on a regular basis. Study is huge, and it's probably an argument as to why we existed all these years, right? Yes. Agreed? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's a piece for people to chew on. And I spoke before about the uh, people of Greece. I thought that this would be a good idea not only to talk about the Jewish people, our people, but to talk about another nation in the world. Did you know that Greece 
is often considered to be the world's first democracy? No, I did not. The Athenian democracy was a system dating back to the 5th century BC. It was a system of direct democracy where citizens with voting rights voted directly on legislation and executive bills. This is incredible stuff. Yeah. It's so funny because people travel to Greece now and they lie on the beaches. They have no idea what Greece brought the world. However, participation at this point was not open to all residents. Right, That's inevitable. To vote, you had to be an adult and a male citizen. Right. (laughs) Sorry, Rach. (laughs) So in other words, foreigners, women, and slaves had no votes. I'm in that category. Yes, you are. (laughs) One of the sunniest countries in the world is Greece. Greek food is world famous and delicious. Do you like Greek food? I love it. It's incredible. It's the only only food I don't like. <laughs> 98 really? I, no, Spanakopita. I'm not big on that stuff. I don't know why. I don't know why. Oh, when you said Greek food, I thought of fish automatically thought of fish. Like red snapper. Greek salad. Not and... big on it. No. No, don't know why. 98% of the total population in Greece are ethnic Greece, Greeks. Okay? Oh, okay. Uh Greece has more than 2,000 islands. Wow. That's a lot of islands. It sure is. <laughs> but only 170 of them are populated. The other islands are uninhabited. And finally, 40% of the total population of Greece is residing in the capital, Athens. Okay. I do know a fact about Greece. No, tell me. Greece has an area, um, if I'm saying it correctly, I think it's Ithaca. And it is a blue zone in the world. Um, blue zone being one of the places in the world where people live the longest and healthiest. Do that? That really? Yeah. And um, I remember watching an interview of this elderly woman who lived there, and they followed her through um, a week in her life, and questioned why these people were living so long and she was like she must have been about 90 years old she was going up these rickety stairs picking her tomatoes she was picking her vegetables they ate fruits and vegetables primarily um fruits and veggies they had fish they ate cheese from the goats that they heard mm-hmm. they had um, lamb only when they made a big festivity. So they weren't big meat eaters. And I was trying to find like healthy commonalities to try and understand why these people there were so healthy and living so well. And um, they're vibrant. Into it's amazing. Their, into their old age. Fantastic. So they had their grandchildren crawling on them yeah. during the mm-hmm. interview. And there are no old age homes. There is no residence where you pawn your parents off Correct. That's to right. grow old by themselves. That's right. They live with their family till they die. And that keeps you alive. Yes, That it does. gives you purpose. Yeah, it when does. you have to make a little breakfast for the person sitting next to you, you have a purpose to wake up in the morning to go fulfill in that same way, we were we were talking about um, connections that people can make, and one thing that came to my mind is is why aren't we doing that here? Why aren't we taking children like the Dutch and putting them in old age homes in daycares and and doing half a building 
with the daycare, half a building, with the retirement home, and giving the elderly an opportunity to to give. That's nice. Their That's wisdom, their beauty, yeah. their... You know, the elderly want to dance the same way the children want to dance. It's very true. With that it? same uninhibited, don't give a hoot about anything kind of way, it's right? It's very true. Very true. Because well, we kind of go back to our childhood as we get older, right? Why not nourish that instead of looking at it like, oh, yeah, they've lost it. To go back to what uh, what we were talking about before, I yeah. want you to answer that question in a moment. The question of why don't we have more teachers whom we remember fondly? who changed our way of thinking, who inspired us. But before we do that, um, I want to mention a couple of teachers in history who are quite well known um, and say a little bit about a particular one. Aristotle was one of the great educators. And, you know, we've all heard about Aristotle and his philosophy and Sullivan. Many parents have probably felt at one time or another that one of their child's teachers was a miracle worker a teacher who somehow gets results where other teachers have failed. Right. Although the idea of a miracle worker has entered common parlance, the phrase was coined by Mark Twain to describe one particular person. In fact, the term has become almost synonymous with her name. That person is Anne Sullivan, the teacher of? Helen Keller. Excellent. The teacher of Helen Keller. According to uh, famous teachers in history biography, a mere 20 years old when first employed to school the deaf and blind, Helen in 1887, Anne Sullivan herself was blind for much of the first part of her life. Educated at the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston, Sullivan had recovered part of her eyesight by the time she traveled to Alabama to begin her job as Helen Keller's governess. Undoubtedly, Sullivan's own partial blindness gave her insight in the fullest meaning of the word, into the little girl's closed-off world. As of uh, the 1957 play, The Miracle Worker so effectively dramatized it, Sullivan's breakthroughs with Keller came as she spelled words on her hand. That's something like you would do. In her, uh, first, in, uh, on her own palm, to make her understand that things had words attached to them. Sullivan placed one of Keller's hands under running water. On the other, On the other hand, she spelled W-A-T-E-R. Soon Keller could express herself far beyond the series of primitive signs that had been her sole means of communication up to that point. What are you thinking right now? I see those wheels turning. She gave her life by doing that. She gave her life. She gave Helen life. She did. She, without communication, what are we? Right. It's our way into each other. Um, so what I was thinking is that I, I worked at a very high needs special school for children with developmental disabilities and, um, just so happened that I got the class with the most medically fragile children in the school. They were between 12 and 14, 15 years old. They were all in wheelchairs uh, didn't have mobility uh, with their hands or their legs. Some of them were blind. Um, they were basically strapped into reclined wheelchairs on feeding tubes. And I was um, challenged with being their teacher. Wow. How'd you do? Um, 
I closed the doors and I did what I would want somebody to do for my child. You realize very quickly that reading and writing is not what's needed here and what's needed is uh, to see them smile and to make sure that that every day that you got at least a smile out of one, two, three, or all of these kids and and that they had the ability to laugh and to be angry and to feel every single emotion that we feel. It was just trapped inside of them and expressed very differently than anything we're used to. Uh, some of them couldn't even see me, so I had to make them feel me. Um, but they feel your presence standing next to their chairs, and I had to learn their way. And I remember um, at the beginning, at the end of a school day, they were all picked up. I put them all on the bus with these two incredible um, educational assistants that I had. And I went back into my classroom and shut the door, and I lied on the floor. And I just stared up at the ceiling because I realized that in those chairs, that's what they were looking at all day. They weren't actually positioned in a way where they could see me. They were staring at a blank white ceiling. So I um, moved all the tables and I got up on the tables and I, I put little lights all over the ceiling. I wrote things on the ceiling. I drew things on the ceiling. <laughs> And um, I love that. And I tried to get them out of those chairs as much as I could because I learned really quickly that uh, they were about my own size. Yeah. Um, they were growing teenagers, and moving them around was very difficult for the parents. So they spent most of their lives in bed or in the chair. But there was no reason that um, they couldn't be propped up. Uh, sitting on the floor there was no reason I had one student that I remember just I'll never forget him because when I met him he he used to smash his head on the back he had a headrest behind um, similar to a, a car seat with a headrest there to support your head and he used to bang his head behind there and everybody said to me Oh, he's just stimming. Stimming is what they do to stimulate themselves because they're lacking in other areas and it makes them feel good. And I would stare at him and, I, and I'm and i thinking, stimming? Like, you would smash your head to stim? Wouldn't you do something that involved uh, allowing a good feeling to come through your body? And it didn't make sense. It was not logical to me that hitting your head against something and causing a pain was actually stimulation although it could be. For some reason, I knew it wasn't with him. And I started taking all of his guards off. So his hands were strapped down, his legs were strapped down, his head was strapped in. And he felt like he was in jail in that chair. And every day I took off a different restraint. And, um, and then I took him out of the chair completely and I left him on the floor. I padded the floor with these mats, you know, the exercise mats that we use commonly. Um, I padded the floor so he wouldn't get hurt. And I had never seen him laugh and be so free as he was 
he was crawling around. He couldn't walk, but he was free. And when he did go back into his chair, he stopped hitting completely. He was not banging his head back anymore. And then I figured, what would feel better than massage? So we got one of those, uh, it's almost like a mat, a massage mat. And he would lie on it and I would turn on the controls and it would vibrate in different areas. And he loved it. And, um, and the thing that just stuck with me was that all I had to do was relay this information to his parents so that they can do it at home and their lives are going to get better. So it wasn't just about him. It was about understanding that these parents are trapped forever. They have a child that they are going to take care of forever. The idea of retiring and freedom and traveling doesn't exist for these people. What exists is that they have to take care of their child or live with the fact that they're going to put this child in a home where he's going to be taken care of as he gets older and they can't do it anymore. Um, so giving parents the tools or the little bit of insight that I got during the day uh, was very, very rewarding to me. Um, because they are so depleted and so taxed, there was very little reward involved. There were barely thank yous, and it didn't even matter, because you know that what you're doing is right. And it's not right because people are telling you it's right, because people are actually telling you it's wrong. Um, I had to close the doors when we did this stuff. I had to make sure that my assistants wouldn't go telling the principal or telling teachers that this is what was being done, because because you're worried, you're scared that that they could take away your livelihood. They could actually just stop you from being a teacher for doing something that you know is inherently right because it's not in the books, because there's a liability, because if he bangs his head and he hurts himself, it's on you, so no one takes a chance. So teachers are scared. They're scared to be held responsible for doing things that are out of the box. But the world is out of the box now. The world with where technology is going, none of us know. We have to teach. I see it as my responsibility to teach kids to think out of the box and to think differently. Because people like jobs, people like um, people who have made like big changes in the tech world, like Microsoft, Bill Gates, um, they weren't in the box thinkers. We are, um, as educators, moving forward and moving forward into a space where um, there is no certainty. I don't know what's going to happen technologically. I don't know um, how to really prepare children for that. Teachers are teaching coding now. There's a piece of me that thinks, oh, that's great. We should teach them how to code really young um, so that they can create more. And then there's another side of me that um, that thinks they have iPads at home. I don't want any technology in my classroom. We go down to the ravine and get dirty and, and you know, I put crazy 
sensory things out on the tables so that they can experience things with me that they're not experiencing at home because parents can't take paint and slather it on the table and, you know, just clean it up at the end of the day. It'll go all over the house. So they don't do it. So I try to take that into account and, um, and let them just be children. So I think you answered the question and tell me if I'm correct. The question as to why we do not have more teachers in our history who inspired us, who changed our way of thinking. I've asked many people along the road, how many teachers have you had like that? And the answer is usually zero to three, and it's usually closer to zero. I've had a couple, but you're talking about 15, 16, 17 years of education. Right. I think you answered the question. Would you agree? They're, uh, teachers are frightened. They're afraid. I think so. You, you have to really know that you're going to be supported to do crazy things. And I mean, that's why it, it keeps coming up in my mind whether or not I should have just opened up a school and, and done my own thing. Because um, although I see the value in, in protecting the children and making sure that, you know, touching isn't happening in any even remotely inappropriate way where anybody could ever question anything. But then I realized that the people who are going to question are going to question. Somebody who walks into the room and sees me doing an assessment with a child on the computer and the child's standing there for so long, they say, can I sit on your lap? It's natural to me to say, yeah, of course you can. The person who questions and whose mind goes to the wrong place will always exist. They can walk into the classroom, see the child sitting on your lap, and think horrible things. That person will always be there. So teachers have to protect themselves, and that sad reality stops them from being as true and as real as we want the children to be. Rach, we're wrapping up the show. Um and I really feel very blessed um, to have done this with you because we've known each other for so long. And as I said before, this is the culmination to this moment. God willing, we should have many more years of friendship. The culmination of so much of what you and I have done together, so much of what you have accomplished. And it's been really beautiful to watch you grow into a magnificent, magnificent teacher, woman, just a fine person, really. Like I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you could be one of the great teachers of the world. Your philosophy, well, your philosophy is wonderful. I don't really know how you keep a job. (laughs) (laughs) Close door. You know, do you ever get in trouble? No, I never, I never do things that I know are going to really get me in trouble. Right, yeah. but like, well, your supervisor say, listen, Rach, I know you're doing this differently than most, and we're cool about it, but, you know. I check things out. I ask. I let them know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm aware of my surroundings, and and I try to, uh, to make sure I'm taking everything into account. Right, right. But you should know that um, you've been one of my greatest teachers. I don't know that I ever said that to you, but you have. You, Thank you. You made me look at myself in a way that I'm not sure anyone ever has. You opened doors for me and introduced me 
to the right people at the right time, which is all most people need. And I don't think we put enough value in that. If everybody just introduced someone who needed a job to someone else, there'd probably be a lot less unemployment going on because we all really have a network of people. Right. So thank um, you for saying that. You've taught me probably some of the most important lessons in my life, other than the lessons that my sisters and my mother and father have taught me. I, I can't say that about anyone else in my life. So I thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. It means the world to me. It really does. And uh, I think what I want people to take out of this show, I think there's a couple of things. Number one is, yeah, we really have the ability to show love and to take in love. And I think that you reflect that in a very big way through your family, through yourself, through what you do with your students. We, we need more love in this world. People often ask me, how do we counter terrorism? I said, in the only way that you and I can, we're not going to put on a uniform, strap on an M16. We just need to be kinder. That's what we can do. That's what's within our grasp. And being kinder is showing love, right? Right. So I believe that our listeners can take that out of this interview. And I also believe that in terms of teaching and how you approach it, um, you do go out of the box and you are present and you are yourself and you implement ideas that are natural, that would work with, as you said, your own child. And I really encourage people to do that within their environment, in particular if they're teachers, because there is a problem with teaching today. A, a bit, very big problem is that people aren't inspired. Right. Kids do not love school. They don't. And they love it less the further on they get. When you talked about Mr. Dworkin and your other teacher, those were grade one teachers. So I'm wondering why weren't they grade eight or grade 10 or grade 12 teachers? Not as though there aren't teachers out there, God forbid, who are superlative. There are. And I would never say anything to undermine the professionalism and the incredible work that they do. And in fact, teaching as a career is a very holy thing. It's a very holy career, is it not? I, I, um, I can't think of anything more important to be doing. Yeah. Uh, other than saving their lives, um, other than being a physician and actually saving a life physically, uh, you're giving them the tools to navigate life. Right. And you're giving them the ability to love themselves and to see themselves in a positive way. Without that, uh, what you read, what you write, how you learn, doesn't really matter. Right. It's like me trying to teach math to a child that's hungry. It doesn't make sense. So, Rachel, thank you for doing this interview. You're welcome. And it was great to have you as a guest. It's great to be here. And always great to have you as a friend. And I wish you well. Thank you. And I want to thank uh, my listeners for listening. Um, we've done a lot of great shows up until this point. This is the 29th episode. So have a listen to others that we've done. And uh, if you have ideas for guests, please let me know at info at hatradio.ca. Uh, this has been a real good one. 
a really good. It's one I'm going to listen to many times. So thank you again. You have been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? I love it. It's good, huh? Show that schmoozes. <laughs> it's a schmooze. It's a schmooze. And God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the high.